TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. HBR presents. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Ni. I'm Felix. And I'm Rowie. And hi, guys. Hey. What a nice and tranquil start to the new year, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I saw this very funny sign the other day where someone said, cancel my subscription for 2021. I tried for seven days and it's not really what it promised to be. <laughs> so what is your strategy for getting through a week where day after day, there is so much news coming out of our capital. Yeah, I would say I have two strategies. One is I work out with all of this random workout equipment. So I basically got a, a gym in my basement with kettlebells and, and stuff and try to imagine that maybe I'm just getting stronger in some sort of literal and metaphorical way. And then the other way I spend time, honestly, is I try to think about what clever things I'm going to say about what's going on when people start to ask me about it because I know I'm going to have to say something. Well, then the fact that we're taping right now is perfect, which brings me to tonight's topics. Felix? So I would like to talk about the recent decisions of social media networks like Twitter, like Facebook to ban President Trump. Okay, great. And then I want to talk about a story that actually broke back in December. Because believe it or not, there are other stories going on. And this one involved what we believe to be a Russian hack. Mm. And given that we have Rowie on the podcast, I thought we could talk about this Russian hacking story as well. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Perfect. Okay. Felix, you want to get us going? Yes. So we still see the consequences of the mob storming the Capitol. And one of the interesting things is that at this point in time, Twitter and Facebook have now decided to lock the president's account indefinitely. Google and Apple banned this app called Parler, which was an alternative forum for conservatives to meet. And perhaps the most important, the most significant decision was by Amazon. They decided not even to provide web hosting services to Parler. So literally the website disappears overnight as if it never existed. And I'm curious about your view. What do you make of this? Is it appropriate? So there are very complicated First Amendment questions. In principle, 
except that none of these firms has any First Amendment obligations because the First Amendment says Congress shall pass no laws. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, they can do whatever they want. But I worry that the consequences of this for public discourse will be really complicated and unforeseen. And so I wonder whether this is going to turn out to be counterproductive for society, even if the firms are totally within their rights, since they're not the government, to do whatever they want. So what's the sense in which you think it might get worse? I think the anxieties across the political spectrum, but definitely most emphatically on the right in the United States, about the tyranny of big tech, about big tech being leftist, I think it galvanizes the support for the idea that the elites, business elites and political elites, just don't want to hear from certain Americans. And their anger is only going to increase because of this and confirm this idea that, in fact, this collection of political and business elites are not only not listening to Americans who are unhappy, but they will refuse in a way to listen to them. So, Rawi, I agree that the perception that you described might exist, but the reality is somewhat different, though, isn't it? I mean, the fact is Trump was not banned for his opinions. He wasn't banned for spouting falsehoods. Mm. Trump was banned for inciting actual violence mm -hmm. that resulted in people dying. Parler wasn't banned because people were spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories, and it certainly wasn't banned for being right-wing. It was banned because it was being used to plan further acts of coordinated violence. So there's no question Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, they have the legal authority to ban users. As you put it, as private companies, they get to determine their terms and conditions. Mm. So the question in this case, I think, is what do we want ultimately from these social media platforms? If you think of a continuum on the one hand, you have a platform where you can literally say anything, no matter how dangerous, all the way over to the other side of the continuum, where you have an utterly authoritarian government that won't let you say anything that doesn't meet its approval. And so the question is, where do we want to land? In Europe, there's a greater focus on privacy. There are more restrictions on free speech. There's a much heavier regulatory environment for social media companies. So where do we want to be? I think when it comes to big tech, we are perhaps the most laissez-faire of the advanced industrial countries because we haven't figured out what we want yet. But this particular case was so egregious that you then had companies that have been loath to impose any kind of restrictions up until now being forced to do so by this egregious set of circumstances. So was this particular decision the right one? I think it absolutely was the right one. Does that mean that this is where we should draw the line going forward? That, I think, is a much, much more complicated conversation. I think the bigger issue that much of this raises is the metric by which companies have built these online platforms is essentially clicks and time spent on these apps. And it turns out on both of these metrics, clicks and time spent, the more incendiary the conversation is, the more you rile up people, the greater the number of people who want to join in the conversation, the more time they spend. I would have hope that some of the reckoning will have to do with, well, how do we build these algorithms? Are algorithms maybe 
better suited to demoting the kinds of content where we know this is false information. Because that's also a degree of freedom that the companies have, right? Every company can say tomorrow, if you say something that we know is false, then your tweet will, of course, be allowed, but it won't get the prominence. And so there are other models out there where the logic of promotion is a different one. And I think if we want to get back to a healthier conversation, it really that has to be the core. Mm-hmm. A healthier conversation means a different logic of promoting particular pieces of information. There's this other really complicated element of it, and I'm not a lawyer, and I guess none of us is a lawyer, <laughs> about the 1996 Communications Decency Act and Section 230 of it, mm-hmm. which is one of the mechanisms by which these social media platforms grew to be so powerful and large in the United States because it gives them a carve-out and describes them very clearly as not being publishers. They are platforms. Publishers have different responsibilities than platforms. And you can't have it both ways. If Twitter wants to be a publisher, which is to say it monitors and regulates what goes on its platform, then it's no longer just a platform. And so the you know repeal Section 230 is like a rallying cry right now. <laughs> but I think this gets back to your the first point you made about how complicated some of this stuff is. You know, Felix, when you were talking about that engagement economy and the motivation to get clicks, I was thinking about how one of the things that makes free market capitalism work is that in most cases, the market tends to naturally reward players for being right, while it tends to punish players for being wrong. I mean, if you're an investor and you're wrong about something, the market will punish you. If you're a CEO, you make the wrong bet. There's a natural feedback loop that punishes you. What makes a free market work is that the market tends to reward you when you're right and punish you when you're wrong. And it used to be the case that this was true with journalism too. If a high profile news outlet got something wrong, there was a natural negative feedback loop. There would be retractions, embarrassment, And if you did it frequently enough, Mm. your subscriptions would go down and you would lose advertisers and all of these negative things would happen. In journalism, that feedback loop has disappeared because our media consumption has become so tribal. And because, for example, Fox News is preaching only to true believers, it can say whatever it wants and the market won't punish it. In fact, it might even be rewarded with greater viewership. This is even more true of social media because the business model is driven by engagement. It rewards extremism. It rewards emotionalism. It rewards hyperbole. So there is no natural self-regulating market mechanism anymore. It's so unhealthy for our democracy. On the other hand, if you listen to any hearing, congressional hearing, about any topic related to big tech, one of the overwhelming takeaways you get is how superficial the understanding of our lawmakers is on how these big tech companies operate. And so it does not give you any kind of faith that they can come in and write laws that are going to understand some of these nuances. I I totally agree with you, young me. It's not clear that we could rely on American lawmakers to come up with a way to solve this problem. And then we're stuck between deciding whether Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg and his colleagues will be the ones in charge of this or whether it will be lawmakers who don't have a keen understanding or 
the reverse, which is that they have a perfectly keen understanding of this and thrive within these environments and don't necessarily want those environments mm. to change. It's not a great choice. It's not a great choice. But imagine a world in which you had these big tech companies being super thoughtful as well as super disciplined in how they enforce their terms and conditions. If you look at the terms and conditions for Twitter and Facebook, for example, you see language that is very carefully crafted, mm -hmm. but they have been incredibly lax in enforcing that. I think we would be in a different place if we had some trust in these big tech companies in their ability to moderate these conversations in a much more disciplined way. And this is the reason why I'm not super optimistic about treating Twitter and Parler and all the other apps like regular publishers. Yes, so it would, you know, give additional responsibilities. But look at Fox News. I mean, on Fox News, the day after the Capitol is stormed by the mob, they spread the rumor that it was Antifa that it was left-wing activists among the quote-unquote patriots who caused all the damage. And that is a publisher that needs to live up to the rules of publishing. But somehow, if you do it in smart ways, these constraints on what you can and what you cannot say, they just don't bite. They just don't have the force that we need. So Felix, can I just ask you directly? Your thoughts on Section 230 right now is you would not lift Section 230. I'm okay with lifting Section 230, but that will just give us the level of decency that we see on Fox News, which I don't think is sufficient. What about you, Rowie? I agree with Felix. It's not going to be a resolution, but I think it would be at least moving in the direction of the principle that if... Twitter and Facebook and YouTube want to have views about what goes on their platforms, which they should, then they should be recognized not as purely neutral platforms. I also want to connect this to the business element of the decisions by these companies. We've had four years of all sorts of madness in this country. And I think part of what's going on with Amazon and with Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. is they've done more or less nothing for the entire Trump presidency as actual falsehoods propagated through their networks or through the Amazon servers. Mm -hmm. And so isn't this just a last minute effort by the enabling architecture of this system to try to distance itself from one of the monsters it helped to create. Perhaps, but I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Oh, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think it's a totally great thing. Okay. I think it's very valuable. I just don't want to celebrate this choice as having been principled or high-minded oh. after not having done anything for yeah. years and acknowledge that they're making a business decision. They're not making a public policy decision because they're thoughtful interlocutors of the needs of our civil discourse. <laughs> yes, that would be said a little bit too much. Oh, I agree. On the other hand, there is such a thing as a tipping point. And the example I would give is on this podcast, for three years, we have been 
really reluctant to talk about anything political on it. Mm -hmm. And I think we hit some tipping point where we just turn on the mic and say, we have to talk about this. It's a great point, right? It's totally true. I feel much the same way about conversations that I have with students about politics because I teach about this. I teach about political economy. I teach about how electoral systems work and what the consequences are for business. And I always maintain a very neutral tone. Mm -hmm. And I felt myself at a tipping point as well last week, in part because of the speech that President Trump gave. But for me, a very personal moment was seeing a Confederate flag in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, and mm -hmm. the meaning of that flag has been a source of controversy and contestation and angst for my entire life. And it was such a shock to see that image, since the Confederacy was essentially treasonous. It tried to destroy the Union. So the idea that like this is a symbol mm -hmm. for a movement that tried to actually end the United States of America. But that symbol really changes the dynamic in so many ways because there are boundaries in discourse. And that is a speech act. And President Trump's speech was a literal speech. Mm -hmm. And there are I think moments over the past week in which we've just blown through in the most obvious ways some of the essential boundaries of civil discourse. Since the entire point of civil discourse is to have a functioning democracy, not to undermine it. Mm. Probably that visceral reaction you describe, I think there are so many Americans that experience that this week. And that's why I have trouble overgeneralizing from what we see coming out of Amazon Google, Apple, Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think it completely leaves unanswered a whole set of larger questions that both of you guys raised with respect to, okay, what now? What do we do going forward? And what does it mean for the kind of speech that should be permissible on these platforms? I think that is completely unanswered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of really great questions to think about. I'm sure this is a topic that we will revisit before too long. Okay, with the time remaining, I did want to talk about this other topic, particularly because we have, Rawi, we have you here. So for our listeners, Rawi is not only a scholar of international affairs, he is a Russia expert. <laughs> so last month, which seems like an eternity ago, the U.S. announced that it had been hacked. And the list of government entities that were hacked included the White House, the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, all five branches of the military, the Treasury, the Commerce Department, the Energy Department, which manages our nuclear weapons stockpile, in addition to hundreds of private companies like Microsoft. And the U.S. almost immediately pointed to Russia as the culprit. So the first set of questions I wanted to ask is, what is the goal here? And in particular, I'm interested in the distinction between espionage and sabotage. Which one was this, first of all? Are you convinced that it was Russia? And how concerned should we be about this kind of hacking? So I think we should start by saying that we don't know for sure that it was Russia. 
the fact that the entire intelligence community has come to that conclusion suggests that there is evidence, but they're not going to show it to us because that would reveal a lot about how they're monitoring these networks. So if we just assume for a moment that the intelligence community is right, and one of the reasons why they might believe that is that this was such a capacious intrusion full of so much cleverness that there are actually not very many countries in the world whose intelligence agencies would have been able to do something like this. Hmm. And if we assume for a moment the attribution, and if we assume also that the FSB is going to listen to our podcast, or if they're not going to listen to the podcast when it's done. <laughs> of course they will. <laughs> that they're listening to it right now before it's published. I think that this falls into a category of Russian geopolitics that is familiar, which is part of the point of this was to create alarm and reveal vulnerability and to show that they can do this, which changes some of the geopolitical logic for us if we recognize that perhaps in the world of cyber at the moment, Russia is the superior power because they have channeled so many of their resources and expertise into cyber, which does not cost very much money. It doesn't cost as much money as tanks or nuclear weapons. This is geopolitical power that is relatively inexpensive. So this is just a massive flex on their part? In the kinetic world, we would call this a show of force. So a flex, indeed. Like, these are all of our tanks. These are all our aircraft carriers. We want you to know how powerful we are and how capable we are. We'll have to see what else comes out of it. Like it's still the early days. If we hear that they stole something or put something in, which we don't yet quite know, but my intuition is that this is a cyber show of force. So Ravi, what's the kind of tangible benefit that Russia would get from this show of force? What's the benefit that I get from these kinds of activities? And can I just piggyback onto that question? I mean, the worst case I can think of is something like sabotaging our nuclear weapon system or manipulating our power grid. But there are also mm -hmm. these indirect acts like massive identity fraud or influence operations. So to Felix's point, what's the goal here? So I think that from a geopolitical point of view, in the same way that a show of kinetic force would allow for a different character of negotiations about some unrelated issue to say like, well, you know, we could attack you whenever we want. We could do all sorts of things whenever we want. And you might not even notice until it's already happened, or in this case, until months after it has happened. And so I would say that it provides leverage in negotiations about a range of other diplomatic issues about which Russia cares very deeply and describes in cyber terms Russia as a great power, even if it is not any longer a great power in the world more generally. So mm -hmm. Russia today is 1.5% of world GDP and mm. on the decline. Yeah. This is like the size of Spain mm -hmm. in the world economy. And in cyber, Russia punches way above its weight and so would be able to achieve results in negotiations with the United States by displaying force that is 
constitutive of a credible threat to do all sorts of other things. I think I hear you saying we don't know specifically what they intend to do with it, and that's part of the point. Absolutely. <laughs> and the combination of ambiguity and credibility is a very powerful thing in geopolitics, that you don't know what they might do, but you know that they can for sure do something that shocks you. And if this was mm -hmm. about creating the sense of a credible act that could be undertaken at some moment if they were disappointed by some other geopolitical outcome, it begins to make sense as a kind of coherent grand strategy. I have to confess I'm a little less concerned about all of this for two reasons. One is it's not as though the Russians have this capability and we do not. In fact, when you look at the Department of Defense's official cyber strategy is something called Defend Forward, which allows the department to break into foreign networks, to do all the things that we accuse the Russians of. And in a very interesting way, it's now created a situation where we're not so sure what they can do to us, but the same is true for them also. They're not so sure what we can do to them. And mm -hmm. I think there is a very plausible argument that you can make if you cannot be sure what the other side can actually do to you. Maybe you want to be even more careful. If you're risk averse, I think there's a logic that would say the chances of anyone actually using any of these weapons might be even lower than under the old protocol. And can I just totally agree with the first point that you made? The idea that we, the United States, is not all up in Russia's business in its infrastructure <laughs> is like absurd. <laughs> like, of, yes. of course we yeah. are. I don't think the <laughs> Russian government would admit to an intrusion of this size because it would reveal such weakness. Right. So in a way, what's also <laughs> so, interesting yes. is that the Americans are like, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all really everywhere. <laughs> and, and it makes us look kind of ridiculous and vulnerable. Frankly, if we're doing our job, we have done something similar. And yeah. we don't even know if this was a retaliation against a thing that we have been doing. That's right. <laughs> so listen, I am not nearly as sanguine as you guys. I do think it's a different world we live in now that your economic standing in the world does not necessarily correlate to your ability to be a cyber hacking superpower. So you can be essentially irrelevant economic power like Russia or North Korea, and you can, mm -hmm. as you put it, Robbie, punch well above your weight class in terms of your cyber hacking abilities. And that seems to me to upend a little bit of the geopolitical order. I think you're definitely right about that. It definitely upends the order in significant ways, because when we used to think about questions of the rise and fall of great powers, military prowess followed economic might. Exactly. And the reason that's important is that it's a natural stability check. In other words, I might be a military superpower, but I'm also an economic superpower. And mm -hmm. I don't want to rush into some geopolitical crisis in a reckless way, mm -hmm. because I have this huge economy that I'm trying to support. Totally. Once you have these countries with very weak economies that have this kind of leverage, now that equation is completely different because they have a lot less to lose. So this feels like a riskier situation to me. I'm not sure I would say it's altogether riskier. I think that historically, 
the rising great power. So in this moment, that would be China. Historically, rising great powers express an appetite to rewrite the rules of the system in ways that destabilize the system. Hmm. I think in this case, the element of risk is just more complicated because it's not only that you have to worry about the rising great power. Mm -hmm. In this case, it could be many other countries. Iran is really good at cyber. You know, Russia is really good at cyber. North Korea is plenty good at cyber. And it complicates the geopolitical landscape in some really profound ways. But it also means that for countries like Russia or for Russia in particular, they really have to specialize in certain capabilities because they can't do everything. And can we just talk about an underwear story for a moment? Because I think it's actually <laughs> relevant for this conversation. If you think about the attempt to assassinate Alexei mm -hmm. Navalny, the Russian yeah. opposition politician, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by putting a powerful nerve agent, Novichok, in his underwear. underwear. A spectacular yeah. and surreal story and a story of like staggering incompetence. So like the nerve agent poisoning assassination team is clearly not at the same level as the <laughs> cyber team. Because they've put all of the expertise into cyber and they can't put it everywhere because it's not that kind of system anymore. One of the things that I find tragic about this is the ability to actually build value from stolen information, I think is very, very limited. So we know from the recent Russia hack that they accessed Microsoft source code. Is it likely that we will see a Russian competitor to say Microsoft Teams? Of course not. <laughs> That's never going to happen. And so in a way, the tragedy of countries like Russia and North Korea is that they're just playing on that destructive side of the ledger. And none of what they do and none of the resources invested will then allow them to build fabulous companies and products and services. No, totally. And I mean, Russia was a great power. Russia is now in some ways a cyber great power, but not in many other dimensions. But it's a great power on the decline. Right? It's not like China or Brazil or India or these other countries that we think about as being on their way to the center of the system or being on their way up. Russia is on its way down, which when we think about this question of like which situation is riskier, a known great power on its way up or a vulnerable great power on its way down, Yeah, that's in some ways even riskier trying to maintain mm -hmm. its relevance. But I think also the other element of this, in the kinetic world, there's always this question of what's called the offense-defense balance, which varies over time based on military technology. Like, do prevailing military technologies make offense greater than defense or defense more powerful than offense? In the cyber world, there's no way to have defense be more potent than offense. And so this is a situation in which offense has the advantage, basically, period. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing anything on the defensive side. Oh, for sure, yeah. So my question here then is, this is called a supply chain attack because they attacked a supplier. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was a company called SolarWinds. SolarWinds is one of literally hundreds of companies that provide software to the U.S. government. And so one question is, if you're the government or you're some agency in the government, how do you do diligence on the hundreds and hundreds of little private companies that are providing software to you, any one of which 
could end up having a vulnerability that creates a backdoor into the whole system. And the related question is, these private companies are for-profit companies with incentives that are not necessarily aligned with the public interest. So Mm -hmm. how should we be thinking about defense at all, given that that's how our infrastructure is set up? It's a great question. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) As usual. (laughs) I think one of the ways to think about that question is to say that as long as everything is connected to everything, having some smaller number of companies that are viewed as responsible suppliers and vendors might be sensible. And in a way, because the landscape is so fragmented, we might be better off with fewer, Mm. larger companies, more capable companies doing these things, which is not usually a stance that I would like to take. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about big tech. And so ironically, this would be like creating another system like that. I mean, in the same way, when it comes to military hardware, they're really just a handful of the really big defense contractors, right? Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. And it's not hundreds and hundreds, it's handfuls. You see it in financial services. You might remember during the Great Recession, we had this conversation whether large banks are too big to fail. Large banks have basically doubled in size, at least. And one of the really big forces is investments in IT. Financial services spends way more than other business segments on IT. And the reason why you can afford it is because we have these really large players that in the end, you're safer. You can just defend better Mm -hmm. if you're a larger Mm -hmm. company. This feels like a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. I think it's very likely that we'll only see more of this. This is the new element of geopolitics that is not going to go away anytime soon. This is our new reality. And I think that unless we're going to switch back to typewriters and fax machines, (laughs) which I'm a little bit inclined to do. There's a romance to that, at least to the typewriter, if not to the fax machine. Then we are stuck taking advantage of all of the changes in the technological space and exposing ourselves to new risks as a result. It does sort of freak me out, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> I can tell you about the time I got my identity stolen. That's not going to help me, Robbie. <laughs> no, but it turned out fine. It was it was a funny story in the end. It was just a nuisance story. <laughs> Look, one thing I do appreciate is how you guys always try to end these segments on a slightly optimistic note. So with that, we'll be back with recommendations. Okay, picks. Felix, what'd you bring this week? So I discovered not too long ago, actually, that the range of music recommended by Spotify has really grown in just an amazing way. They now have expanded, say, the recommendations for world music in a really beautiful way. One (laughs) of my recent discoveries is regional Mexican music. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, it's... Out of this okay. world. So, Rowie, Rowie, all in the, the past, most hey, wait, delicious. Stop. In the past couple of years, Felix has recommended, I'm trying to remember, Turkish pop music. And then there was some polka thing you recommended at one point as well. <laughs> so, I mean, he has recommended some crazy music. So now he's going with 
regional, regional Mexican. <laughs> and in particular, if you love the tuba, <laughs> this is just <laughs> too good to be true. It is the <laughs> most you delicious you're making this up. tuba playing. The three no, people go, who are listening so, who love the tuba. I'll, this I'll, is for you. <laughs> I'll say this. So one reason why I don't think this has taken off is because if <laughs> you're if you listen to this, <laughs> if you listen to Spotify through your smart speaker, you don't actually see it. So you have to go to the app or you have to know what's available. So the same is, by the way, is true for regional Indian music. But I would I would start with regional Mexican. <laughs> That's my recommendation. I, I am glad that you solved the mystery of why this regional Mexican tuba music has not taken off. It's some quirk in the Spotify algorithm. But now we know. Yes, you will see. Okay. So, Rowie. What'd you bring today? So since we were talking about Russia and hacking, the best book I've read on this subject is by Adam Siegel, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he wrote a book called The Hacked World Order. If you want to explore the broad parameters of what's going on in this space, this is the best book on the subject. Mm, great. And I have a slightly sillier one as well. And I remember being teased about my last recommendation since it was about, you know, rewriting Greek mythology. And <laughs> it's a lovely book. I stand by it. So I have a, a television recommendation oh, okay. that I discovered this television show called Ted Lasso. Oh, have you watched I've this? I have. Uh, I liked it. It's so sweet. It's like 29 <laughs> minutes for each episode. And I think literally in every episode, I had a deep, unselfconscious, sort of weird-sounding belly laugh <laughs> on a number of occasions. <laughs> and it was so sweet that I think I cried in every episode, too. And that's just the pandemic television I needed, like a cathartic cry and a deep belly laugh all in 29 minutes, super efficient. So I recommend Ted Lasso. But you know, that is one of those shows where there's so many moments when you think it's going to turn cynical, but it turns sweet instead. Totally. And it shocks you because you think they're going to do the cynical or the ironic thing. And they don't. They do the genuine thing. And because that's become so unusual, it just opens up your heart. I agree with you. Yeah. Although I do think this might be a guy thing. I did not cry. <laughs> My husband might have shed a, a tear or two, however. So I don't know. But it's quite wonderful, actually. I like that one. That's a good one. Okay. I'm going to sneak in, too. So one is Ben Smith. He writes a column at the New York Times called The Media Equation. Felix, you might know him. He used to be editor-in-chief yes. at BuzzFeed, right? Yeah, and he came from Politico to Yeah, BuzzFeed. and Politico, that's yeah. right. Okay, yeah. so fascinating guy. But he runs a column at the New York Times called The Media Equation. And it's a must-read for me every week when it comes out. He writes pretty critically on the New York Times itself, more so than previous public editors they've had. Mm. So I would recommend that. And then my second is, I've discovered these boots made by a company called Icebug. And they make these snow boots that are so amazing because they have these little cleats on the bottom of them. And so no matter how much snow or ice there is, you can walk comfortably and rapidly across the snow or ice. I mean, do you guys venture out when it's snowing? Oh, I love snow adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I Though do I don't too. have What's any... What's your strategy? Um, skis. But that's like 
exertion. <laughs> What's your strategy, Felix? I grew up with snow. I don't. Oh, I don't really God. see the big problem walking in snow. Because <laughs> what I use is my natural balance. Yes. <laughs> Remember? Okay. That's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist Education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash afterhours, and enter my promo code afterhours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash afterhours and use promo code afterhours at registration.